Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is your host Saqib Ali and today we'll be taking a deeper dive into a campaign not so long ago called New Balls Please and one of the bright stars of that generation uh, is with me uh, making this podcast better today is uh, Nicola Penti, probably a very household name. The listeners don't need introduction, but I'll let Nico do the honors. Welcome to the show and gracing us with your presence. Hello Saqib, uh, thank you for having me in your podcast. Uh, it's, uh, it's really a pleasure to be able to talk to you and uh, it's always nice to, to bring back uh, those memories. Yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of memories and I'll, uh, hopefully I can do justice to a lot of uh, Nico Lapenti fans who will listen to this. So a standard question from my podcast and I think a lot of podcasts, even though we know your background, where you come from, in your words, how did this tennis journey start? I know you have a, a, a relative in Andres Gomez who won Roland Garros, your brothers played on the tour, but just fill us in, you know, how did you get into tennis and what's your earliest memory? Yeah, well, my, my father was, uh, he, he was a basketball player, so he was really into sports. And uh, once he retired, uh, he started playing tennis uh, around uh, when he was like uh, 32, 35 years old. And that's how he took me to the tennis courts. So I really started playing on the beach with the wooden rackets. Uh, and then uh, when I was six, six and a half, I started going to, to the tennis club here in my hometown in Guayaquil. And that's how it all started. So it was my father who put the racket in my hand. And since then, he just became uh, a great passion. And, and of course, uh, growing up in, uh, in a city where, where you don't have many, many known athletes and having Andres Gomez as, a, as my growing up idol, uh, it was just amazing, you know, to, to be from the same club, uh, to be relatives. Uh, so it was a, a huge, uh, uh, huge, huge push for me. To, to start in tennis. And of course, I always look up to him. Yeah, absolutely. And I listened to you and I think Chris Otto's podcast last year when they celebrated uh, Andre's uh, 30-year anniversary at Roland Garros. Uh, what are your recollections? Again, I know you turned pro a uh, few years down the road, but what do you remember of that win over Agassi? I, I was 14 uh, and uh, here in Ecuador, uh, they were not showing the match. Uh, at the time, they were showing the, uh, the World Cup, uh, Italy's World Cup in 1990. And uh, the Ecuadorian TV channels, they didn't have the rights uh, to show the, the tennis, the finals of the Roland Garros. So they, was just, they were just showing the scores. And then I think they came up with the last game of the match. So it was crazy. I mean, uh, my family crying and celebrating and jumping up and down. And then when, uh, when Andres came back home from, from Paris, uh, all the, the, the kids from our club and the academy, we went to the airport to, uh, for a huge welcome. And uh, it was just uh, those memories that uh, you keep in your mind and in your heart forever. Uh, just to, uh, to be able to be there with a Grand Slam champion uh, from your same club, from the, your same city, and, and especially uh, after the years, I was lucky to to be able to to become good friends and doubles partners in Davis Cup. 
and uh, and Andres just teaches you how big he is when you get to know him because he's just such a humble person. Uh, so it was just a great example for me. Yeah, it's kind of ironic. Like I've heard this even in India, you know, like uh, when the cricket boom happened, one of the most important games wasn't shown live in India. And a lot of people don't even have a video of that game. And it's similar to you with uh, Gomez winning Roland Garros. So it's a football nation, no secret. But what did Gomez's win do? What do you remember? And how did, did tennis become like a second or third most important sport with that? Uh, is it something I, I will, you can... I will, think, I will think tennis, it should be the second uh, most important sport. Uh, there's one athlete uh, that has won two Olympic medals, the only two Olympic medals in Ecuadorian history. His name is Jefferson Perez. Uh, he did it in, in fast walking. I don't know how you call it in English. Uh, in, in Spanish, it's called marcha. Uh, so, I mean, he's, of course, ranked on the top of the uh, best athletes in, Ecuador, in Ecuadorian history. But through the years or through time, tennis has given so much to, to our sport that I think uh, we are top there, you know, like number two or number three. So with Andres winning Roland Garros and all what he did, he definitely helped kids my age or younger to start playing tennis. Yeah. So uh, it, it was definitely a, a, a huge boom. And at that time, we, of course, we know we didn't have uh, the internet, we didn't have the social media and anything like that, but still, it was a great, great thing here in the country. No, I'm sure it was. And I remember watching it in TV in India. I remember that match. Uh, so again, we'll get to your career, but post-retirement, uh, how do you, maybe when you're not playing, you pay more attention. So what is the tennis scene in Ecuador right now? Uh, are there academies uh, that are working on producing the next set of players? Uh, what is the tennis interest and what is the, uh, is there a federation or is it, are these just private academies? Let me ask that first. Yeah, well, there's a federation, of course, and the federation does a pretty decent job. The thing in our country, the, and I think it's the, uh, a common problem in, in our countries, is that we don't have a, a big support. I'm talking about monetary support, you know, mm -hmm. uh, from, uh, from the government, from public companies or private companies. Uh, almost all the, the sponsors go to soccer. And so there's a lot of kids that have a lot of talent, but once they get to 15 or 16 years old, you know that there's, uh, it's very expensive to travel and, and, and play tournaments and have a coach and all those expenses. That's when most of the kids have to quit because they, they cannot afford it anymore. So there are a lot of academies. Andres has an academy with Raul Viver. Uh, there are some academies also in Quito, in the capital. And uh, we have always have talent, but at the moment, uh, we don't have many kids that you can say in five, 10 years, we're gonna have a good group of players playing on the ATP tour. And I'm sure like in like you hear in many sporting nations, like even, even in America, I heard, I think it was Roddick or someone who said that, that maybe a long time ago, maybe I'm not taking the right name, but the, the statement is very true that in US also, 
uh, tennis loses out to the four big sports, which are NBA, NHL, NFL, and baseball. And uh, similarly, maybe in Ecuador, like you said, if there's more sponsorship for soccer. And so you think a lot of kids also choose soccer over tennis uh, in the process? Or is that a yeah, fair well, assumption because it's yeah. more opportunity? Definitely, but I think if if you if you make a comparison of uh, USA, for example, USA tennis to Ecuadorian tennis, the difference is that uh, the USTA they do have money, so no doubt, yeah. the, the the problem there is completely different. Uh, here in Ecuador, the thing is that uh, we need we need more money, so uh, I think that's another thing to analyze, but. Uh, there's definitely a lot of talent here in Ecuador. Has the situation gotten better or gotten worse in terms of the infrastructure of the Federation, given your days and what's currently the situation? Well, right now, the president is doing a very good job. The, the actual president is a very good job. I think when I was on the top, the president didn't do a good job trying to use my time and use my uh, my results to push and give tennis a take it to a, to a next to a next level so hopefully hopefully in the near future we can have some more players uh, i i see kids you know 10 12 14 with a great level but then when they go out and compete when they are 16 17 uh, you can see that uh, there's something missing there's something missing, and, and and you see European tennis is definitely controlling right now, uh, women and men's tennis definitely. Looks like the next wave is going to be from Italy. Italy has a lot of good yeah. infrastructure, of a lot of I think futures and challengers, and you can see the results in Sinner, Musetti, and exactly. Martini. Yeah, you, in Italy you can play almost every single week. You can play a future or a challenger, so that's definitely. Uh, a very good example. Absolutely, and, and and again, I come from India, and we had our you know grass court players uh, in the 80s and 90s, or even further back. But uh, what I remember, and what's currently when I talk to people back home, tennis is more international. So tennis has transcended in the big three era. So a lot of Indian fans root for Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal. So have this global stardom popularized tennis in Ecuador, or? What's the impact of these three men there, how they've taken the game forward? Yeah, definitely, yes. Uh, I think uh, what these three have, have done is uh, they have done it globally. And uh, it has impacted the sport everywhere. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be tough when they're not playing anymore. Even, even with the next gen, uh, so many good players coming up. But these three guys have put the, the the level of tennis and not just tennis, but off the court. You know, they recognize uh, how how, they, how people recognize them off the court. It's just been amazing. And uh, but uh, yeah, people people like you say they follow uh, those big three all over the place. Yeah, I mean they're two superstars. So that brings me to an interesting uh, point. I think uh, with this. You were part of the New Balls Please campaign, you know, that was uh, replacing the Agassi uh, Sampras era. They were still playing, but ATP had launched that and you were 
one of those 10, 11 players, or maybe I don't know how many players were there, but Federer was there, Ferrero was there, Guga, Norman, Roddick, Safin, Hewitt, Haas, Kiefer, Philippousis. So what do you remember of that time? And just talk us through how that campaign got started and, uh, you know, uh, how and uh, what kind of impact did it have for ATP to launch the sport internationally at the end of Agassi, Sampras, Courier era? I think it was a great idea because, uh, like, like today, uh, you had this, especially these four Americans, uh, Sampras, Agassi, Courier, and Chang, uh, that were at, at some stage dominating tennis. But of course, you also had uh, the Boris Beckers, Ivanisevic, and Rafter, uh, and, all, and all this, and all the and all these guys. So we had a very nice group of players uh, that uh, we had maybe Federer was probably the youngest one, but uh, maybe we had two, three, or four years difference. Know that uh, that we were coming up pretty strong, and with that campaign, uh, it's like the ATP tried to uh, to to put more attention on these young guns uh, coming up. And I think that the name of the campaign was pretty cool. Yeah, we it was. Had, it was really cool. Yeah, we had a lot of fun, and uh, it it helped. It definitely helped uh, the tennis world kind of recognized. Uh, us, you know, these young players coming up. And now uh, I think uh, it's with the next gen, right? With the next gen uh, guys that are coming up strong. Uh, the difference is that the, they're the next gen after this big three, which is probably uh, tougher to, yeah. you know, to, to, to be the next, the next top players in the world. No, we'll talk about those guys and uh, also talk about because you tried to join the ATP council uh, that if we can get those questions in the end, but mm-hmm. let's, let's stay on the new balls, please. Again, now we know how it played out. All of you had good careers and some of them like Federer had like, you know, legendary careers, you know, but no, not a bad player in that campaign. So when you were there, let's say if you go back in time and you look at Philippouses, Safin, Ferrero, Roddick, yourself, Hewitt, Norman, so many guys, right? What, what was what was the talk of what did you remember like what was the hype around who was supposed to rule tennis it wasn't sure Federer Federer became Federer I think in 2001 but what do you yeah. remember like who was the biggest talent or who was the biggest talent according to you when you guys were doing that campaign and you know I'm sure you know each other's uh, strengths yeah. so just walk us through that I, memory. At, that, at that moment uh, probably Guga because uh, he was uh, at that time, he had won at least two Roland Garros, uh, if not three, uh, because that campaign was, I think, 2000, uh, 2000 or 2001 was the campaign. So uh, I think I, I think uh, Hewitt had not won a Grand Slam, uh, Safin had not won a Grand Slam, uh, Ferrero had not won. So, so probably Guga was the only one of that group mm-hmm. that had already won a Grand Slam. And then, of course, when Federer came, uh, started winning, there's no, no discussion about it. But uh, even, even besides, uh, besides Federer, I think pro- probably Guga still remains up there. Hmm. Trying to, I'm trying to think of, uh, uh, besides Federer, who won more Grand Slams. Because number ones, 
the players that became number one of that campaign is uh, Safin, Ferrero, Guga, Roddick? and... Uh, was Roddick part of that? I, I don't think Roddick was in that campaign. I don't remember. I don't think he was there. I think uh, the campaign got extended. I've seen many pictures. So maybe the campaign yeah. had different editions. So Roddick probably yeah. came in later. Later, right. because Tommy Haas was part of it, right? Yeah, Tommy was part of it. But then, of course, there were some new guys, uh, for example, Zabaleta from Argentina. It, it kind of extended, but the, the first, like the original campaign, there were probably seven or eight players. Yeah. And uh, so, so, so just to finish answering your question, I think Guga was the one dominating at the time. I spoke to Magnus Norman uh, last year during the pandemic, and he said like something that happened to Guga and him, you know, the hip injury, and that's the hardest one to come uh, come back from. And now we saw Andy Murray, you know, trying his best to, you know, just be back on the tour. So Norman said something, he said, look, the information and the medicine that's available now, the knowledge, how had he to deal with the open stance forehand and all that kind of stuff. He said, if they, if you guys had known that in that time, a lot of careers would have gone longer. So tennis has changed in terms of, you know, what the medical information is and how professional the game has become and how do you use that, how you use and manage that information. So keeping that in mind, the injuries you had, do you think if uh, there was more information, how do you look back at, because your career was impacted by a few injuries. So how do you look back? Is there an ounce of regret? Uh, did you not have enough information when you look back at it now or just uh, walk us through? Uh, some of those injuries. I, I don't. I don't have any regrets really because I, I kind of uh, gave always my hundred percent. I agree hundred uh, percent with uh, what Magnus says. Uh, if we could have all the knowledge about uh, injuries, but more especially uh, prevention, uh, because you see all the guys, all the players doing a lot of. Uh, uh, prevention uh, for injuries and also uh, uh, how you say it uh, the way they eat they, there's way more healthy it's not that we didn't eat healthy before but now there's so much information uh, uh, and so much the technology surrounding the sports has uh, gone so much better that I'm pretty sure, well, that they, I had an injury in my knee that was the one that retired me. I'm pretty sure I could have played maybe two more years, you know, but uh, at the time, that's what we had. And you have to accept that. And I, I just uh, happy that I always gave my 100%. Sure. So I'll ask you a generic question, which I've asked many players, and I use this opportunity it's more like a survey. I, I will never get you, Norman, Soderling together, but I try to ask this question. So polyester strings, you know, we all, we are fans. I mean, I'm a fan with the microphone. That's only difference, but we all talk about how that changed the game. Sampras didn't play with it. Agassi played the last few years with it. You played, you know, probably when it, when it came, you, you embraced it. So with that, with the use of that string, what surface, according to you, uh, got impacted the most tennis style-wise? Did the strings m make so more wonders to how you can play on grass, how you can play on clay? Did it matter surface-wise? Uh, Doesn't uh, even make sense. I mean, maybe it's not a good question, but no, I, no, I always I, thought I, about I, that. Actually, it's a good question. Uh, I, when, when I started playing like my best tennis, I was playing with gut. 
uh, and most of top players at the time were playing with gut, uh, like Sampras, Kafelnikov, uh, and even before me, uh, Gomez and all these those guys. Uh, and then it's just, uh, I think it was around 2000, maybe 2002, 2004, that all these polyester things started coming up. And it's strange because uh, I just felt that God was not there for me anymore. And I had to, you know, move on with all these new, new strings. I would say for clay, uh, because maybe on clays where, where I felt that the, that the polyester helped them more with the spins, you know, trying the way I played with the, with the trying to hit a heavy top spin. So the polyester was getting more this, uh, this, this heavy top spin and was helping a lot. And also those uh, humid European days where the ball gets very big uh, with, uh, with the gut, it felt like the gut was dead at some times. That didn't happen with polyester. So. Was it a big adjustment? Because I've also read again, Lendl has said like sometimes the injuries are also caused because the shock it gives to the arm and the elbow and the shock travels. So you, you guys are all professionals. You've been hitting a tennis ball all your life. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, people at our level, when I play with Polly, I mean, I tried like a few years ago and I couldn't feel my arm after one hour. It really gives so much control and I almost couldn't feel my arm back driving <laughs> home. And then I stay with a multifilament. But what's your take on... Uh, the adjustment did did pros have to adjust or it was you guys just di- don't even feel the change when you no, switch to a poly you feel you feel the change on the feeling but uh, i don't think it it's more it's a much of a change uh injury wise i'm pretty i'm pretty sure some players uh maybe maybe it took them more time to to get used to it maybe your arm gets sore at the beginning and then uh, once you're used to it it's it's okay. It's it's gone, uh, but I don't think uh, it's like a huge issue, you know. Uh, and, and and of course, the, if 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 for some players, it's a big issue. I'm pretty sure they just went back to to whatever they were using. Sure, one of my colleagues or good friends on tennis with an accent, Mert Ertunga, he's been traveling around the circuit. He was a former player. When I told him that Nico Lapenti is coming, you know, we talked about this and he said, ask him about that incredible match with Nadal and Bastard, where he saw that match when Nadal was, I think, 16 or 17. There were four match points. He said it was one of the best matches he's seen. What do you remember of that match? And again, now we know what kind of a legend Nadal turned out to be. But what was your, if you remember, what was your reaction about Rafa after that match? Well, uh we we knew already that uh, there was this incredible young player from Spain uh, because he he already had had a, a few wins before that. Uh, I think he had beaten already Correcha or Moya, uh, and you could see the 17 years old with these huge biceps and huge arms uh, with a baby face and. Uh, the intensity that he used already was just amazing. And uh, I ended up winning that match just because of uh, experience, because it wasn't clay, it was in Borstad. And at the end of the match, when, when Alad was really young, 
uh, he when when he was returning, he was going even farther back than we than what he does today. So at the end of that match, I started serving and bowling, and he was so much way back that it was very difficult for him to pass me. Now nowadays, I mean, he can read that and he steps up a little bit and boom, you're gone. So I saved I saved all those four match points, most of them going to the net or making surf and volley. But uh, the impression at the time was, of course, this guy is going to be there at the top. I mean, he's going to make it for sure to be a top 20 or to be a top 10. But uh, I, I don't think nobody uh, could say that uh, he's going to dominate tennis or or be the best clay court tennis player in history, winning 13 Roland Garros. I mean, no way. I didn't think that, and I don't think anyone thought that at the time. Yeah, that's one of the most ridiculous things, I think, in all sport. I was talking to friends again, who am I? But I thought, like, when he won five, I thought he's going to slow down or six or seven, but it's just ridiculous what he's accomplished. I, I, I had, I had, uh, I've been to, to Gomez house and I see the one trophy of the French Open and I'm amazed. Uh, I've been to, to Guga's museum in Florianapolis and I see the three cops and I'm like, fuck, this guy's God, you know? And, uh, at the beginning of this year, uh, I took my son to the Rafa Nadal Academy and we went to the museum where, where all his trophies are. And it's just, I mean, it's, 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 it's crazy. It's, it's unreal. It's unreal. Yeah. I mean, I, I just couldn't believe it. And, and, uh, and for a tennis fan, uh, you say it's, it's unreal, but for, for somebody that has played at a certain level and knows how difficult it is to do it, I think it's even more amazing. How difficult it is to even do one, right? That's yeah, exactly. look at the guys like who's won one slam, like you know Gomez or Roddick, you know two slam like Safin, Hewitt. It's just so hard, and and these three guys have won sixty when like combined like ten other people might might have won like fifty five or fifty nine. So it's, it's just crazy. So again, I, I won't even you know because Nadal is a standard gods of god of clay, you know. So let's talk about you played some pretty good players. In that duration, you, you beat Muster, you beat Marcelo Rios, one of my favorites. You beat uh, Safin, but Safin was like fading in 2009 in Monte Carlo. Uh, you beat Coria, you beat Ferreros. These are like prime clay court players. You, you beat Guga, you played Federer on clay. So if you look at outside of Nadal, who are the three or four best clay court players that you've played against? Leave Nadal out and who's, say, if you have to pick another five, you definitely have to put Federer in there. Yeah, Djokovic I, too, right? Yeah, if we can, uh, have yeah. you played Djokovic? I think you played I, one match, right? I, I played him. I, I draw to play him in the French Open the first round. And uh, I twisted my ankle and I had to retire okay. after, after the first set. Uh, but I, I would definitely put Federer. Uh, I mean, I, I, uh, I played him twice in Hamburg. And I think he won uh, both of that years. Uh, I would play definitely Ferrero. Mm. Ferrero, when he was playing good tennis, when, it, when, when he reached number one, he was just amazing on clay. Definitely Guga. Uh, Guga, Guga on clay also was uh, really, really tough. Coria? Coria uh, uh, also. Coria also. I mean, Coria, uh, we had some battles. But uh, 
I would say I would say Federer, Ferrero, Guga, and Coria definitely. Definitely. How about Muster? He was a different type of clay court player from previous generation. How would you put him no. in this mix? Sorry, sorry, Muster as well. The thing is that I I I was lucky to beat Muster at the yes. French Open. His last match of 99, his career. Right? No, it was uh, yeah, 99. Uh, yeah, 99 first yeah, round or second round? Yeah, I, I remember that. first round. Yeah, four yeah, sets. I won 7-6 in the fourth. Hmm. And uh, no, Muster, of course. I mean, he was an animal. He was an animal, okay. Uh, so again, uh, with Mooster, right? Classic case example. Won forty something titles on clay, I think. Maybe two on hard and one indoor, if I'm not mistaken. But we look at the Federer, Nadal, Djokovic era, and even Andy Murray. Everybody's winning about the big titles. So you are a former player. Tell us how tennis has changed. Grand Slams were always important, but guys like Mooster, Becker, they were winning different tournaments, and there was not the same importance as Masters 1000s like it is today. Otherwise, Sampras and Agassi would have won more. Or at least seems like. I don't know what the fair question is. I don't want to diminish the go- the goatness of these three guys and Murray and Wawrinka, but you came at the tail end of the Sampras-Becker era, and then you have guys like Mooster. So how would you tell the young audience, like, you know, Tennis was more than Masters 1000. Right now, people say, ah, it's 250. This guy's playing, you know, somewhere, grabbing a 250. Because Twitter culture is very negative. You know, it's all about the goats. And sometimes we disrespect, not everyone, but a lot of people disrespect the other players. And you have to remind them, anyone who's top 100, they're the 100 best players on the planet. So there's not a bad player out there. Yes, Djokovic is Djokovic. I I think... I don't know. You just try to think of what you said. Uh, the players before were more of specialists in, in certain surfaces. So, for example, Muster, he was a, a clay court specialist and he struggled on a hard court. And then, of course, you had Sampras and Agassi that play way, way much better on hard courts and they struggled on clay, even though Sampras, I mean, even though Agassi won the French Open. But uh, you could see Agassi going to Monte Carlo and losing a very, very ugly first round. You know, the same thing with Sampras and same thing with Muster going to an indoor tournament. Now, nowadays with these three guys is that they had managed to be an all-court surface, all-surface all, all players. So you don't see these guys losing a bad first round at any tournament. So this is what it's, I think is the most amazing thing. Then, yes, of course, before that, like you said, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe there was not uh, too much information. The Sampras didn't play the first three, four tournaments in the clay court because after Miami, he took some time off. And then he just came and played maybe Rome and the French Open. And then he was ready for the grass court season. So... It, it was different. It was different. Uh, even even before that, in Andres Gomez time or before, uh, the South American players they didn't play Wimbledon. They they just took that time to rest, you know. And uh, I, I think there's there's a lot of things that is difficult to compare different eras. True. So again, when we're talking with the great players, you. Outside of clay, you've played like five of the greatest players. Okay, Djokovic, you didn't finish that match, but you played Rafa, you played Roger, you've also played Andre and Pete. So if the listeners are here, uh, how, how would you describe the challenge playing, you know, these four guys, maybe one line each? What was it 
like to be against these guys? Who was taking away your time the most? I mean, again, I don't want to put words in your mouth. What, what were the challenges facing these four guys? Out of those four, for my type of game, the one that I hated the most playing was Agassi. Uh, and, and there were two matches that I played Andre that I felt that I wanted just the match to finish and get out of the court because I was, the, I, I was, getting, I was getting humiliated by him. I remember one, one year in, in Indian Wells, I think it was quarterfinals, a night match, and it was windy, and, and he was just getting on top of the ball, right on top of the line, giving me no time at all. And he was just killing me, ripping forehands and backhands. So, so for me, if you have to pick one player that I don't want to play at his peak, it was Andre. Then Sampras, I always had tough matches with him because, of course, he had this great serve, but on my serve, I felt that I can control if I can get to his backhand, you know? So if I could hit a good serve and then take my forehand and play to his backhand, of course, uh, Sampras' backhand was, uh, was weaker. And uh, uh, we played uh, in Hanover and I lost 7-6, seven, 7-6. Six, seven, six. Then I played in Miami and I lost 7-6, six, 6-4. Six, so it was always these close matches. And at the end, you know, he, he ended up serving better and chipping in charge and putting pressure on me and, and winning. At one break, and you know that's what needed sometimes in Sampras matches. Uh, then, then of course, playing playing Federer was uh, was a great experience. Uh, he 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 got he, he was improving every every single year. He was improving. But I remember when I played him in in Hamburg, he, he kind of the, the matches were all always the same with him. I, I started pretty well. You know, one, one, two, two, three, three, and then poof, he will he will take the break, and then I never had the chance to to get back on the matches. And uh, because you also had a lot of variety to your game, you would go to the net, you would chip, charge, you would do a lot of things that Federer was doing. Yeah, so was it yeah. more like who does it better? I mean, that was the mindset with him. Yeah, and and I think and I think he was, uh, you know, he had this all around game, and. Uh, when, when he was hitting that slice, if you didn't come with, with, a, with a good shot, he was very quick on his feet, you know, running around his forehand, and then he would put a lot of pressure on you. And uh, I think, I think uh, he's definitely the most complete player that I had faced. And I think everyone uh, is talking about that. And he's so solid from, from, from everywhere, you know? Sure. Even, even that his backhand is not... Uh, was not his best shot. I mean, he still, you couldn't attack him much more on that side. Uh, and then playing Rafa, uh, well, I beat him when he was 17. Then we had, we had a play, pretty good match in Cincinnati one year. Uh, it was 7-6-6-1. Uh, when I played a very, a very nice first set. Uh, I don't know if you know, but uh, uh, with that match, it was the first time that Rafa will secure his number one spot in yep. the world. Uh, if he would get to the semifinals in Cincinnati, I mean, he would be the number one in the world. Because Federer had lost to Karlovic, I think, right? So and, uh, and it was like in two weeks' time, because after Cincinnati that year were the Beijing Olympics. So I think Federer will lose some points, and then Rafa will become number one. And then I played Rafa Monte Carlo 2009, and that was just... Amazing. I mean, I, I lived, 
I lived what it was like to play rough on clay. I, I, I lost 6-3, 6-0. And in that 6-0 that I lost in the second set, I thought I played good tennis. And you had beaten Safin, right, the previous day in a I, three, I, three hour I, match. I won, I, I, beat, I beat Marat in that tournament and I was playing good tennis and I thought I played well and I lost 6-0 the second set. I mean, it was just amazing. You could not hit a winner past him. Yeah, that, so, that was, I mean, again, the Nadal <laughs> domination yeah. on clay has been pretty scary. So one more question on previous play, then we talk about the current generation. So what is your definition of talent? A lot of people say, oh, McEnroe is the most talented. People say Federer is the most talented. I think Marcelo Rios is up there. So a special word on him. And, and what does talent mean to you, a professional player? When you look at a fellow opponent, what is talent? What does talent mean? Talent. Talent is definitely Marcelo Rios. <laughs> he's, he, he's just crazy. Uh, I mean... You, sometimes, you know, people confused uh, uh, these guys that have talent and uh, they just use their hands and they don't move their feet, you know. And uh, those talented guys, they, they never make it to, to be professional athletes, you know. So, so these talented guys like Marcelo, for example, uh, they also work really hard because you have to combine talent with uh, hard work. And... Uh, I played Marcelo a few times uh, in doubles together. And what he did with the ball uh, in, certain, in certain matches, certain shots that he hit, is just one of the, the best things that I've seen in my life. I mean, he had such a feeling in his hands uh, that it was amazing. Uh, yeah, he, he made tennis, again, it's a cliche, but he made tennis look like easy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it just looked... It looked and, like a video game when he was playing. And, and he just thought that everyone was was bad, you know, in, in, in his in his mind, uh, you know, and the, the way he thinks. Every everybody was bad. I mean, he's if he loses, it's because he was not not hundred percent that day, mentally or physically, whatever. But uh, he was really a pleasure to watch him play. All right. So that's an, again. I said I'll probably get some questions out of your response. So Rios, again, mm -hmm. is also misunderstood, but a lot of people said there were attitude issues or he was arrogant, but he was his own man. So in a man-to-man -man sport like tennis, especially now we live in the big three era, they all are nice gentlemen, at least. You know, they're, you know they, that's, that's how they behave on court. It's exemplary, uh, overall nice to opponents. But when you look at Rios and the arrogance, you think uh, there's still room for that kind of arrogance in tennis? And arrogance also means you need to back yourself because it's a professional sport, right? So what's your take on, you know, the Rios era or the Rios years, if not era, how he was and how he went about tennis and you think there is room for that? I mean, I, I just, in, in the way I think and the way I have managed myself throughout the years, I just respect uh, every single person. You know, I, I think Marcelo and Marcelo and I had a good relationship, uh, and uh, I think it was because I just respect the way he was. And even if I don't agree with a lot of things that he does or that that he did, or even if I don't agree with a lot of things that Kyrgios, for example, says or does, I think sometimes it's good for the sport because there are fans that like that. 
No, Why? you're absolutely, absolutely right. And I didn't mean to put Rios. He's one of my favorite players to watch to, yeah. in a bad light. But I'm just saying in the Federer-Nadal era and now Djokovic-Murray, you know, like they have taken the game in a very different direction. And sometimes I think a personality like Rios wasn't bad. But in those eras, especially when you mm-hmm. guys were playing, the media coverage and lack of social media, we didn't know the players. There was a channel which was media in between. And that's how you know the players. So I wonder how Rios would have been in this era because he's not afraid to be the bad boy, but sometimes is bad boy a title that's also coming out because someone is misunderstood? They don't want to be friends with media? Or what was, again, I don't want to make it about Marcelo Rios, but he's a very well, interesting I, I, character. I, I, I understand. It's, it's, I think it's just personalities. Uh, and these guys, uh, and also I don't want to put names on it, but if we have to... To, to name someone, if you will say McEnroe at the time or, or Rios or nowadays Kyrgios, uh, those, those guys are just personalities. You, you, would not, you would not change them. And I'm pretty sure if, if someone uh, gets in and tries to change Kyrgios' personality, probably he won't, he, he won't play tennis like the way he's playing. I mean, he needs, he needs that. He, he, he needs to be what he is to be able to play at the level he's playing. And, and again, I think it's good for tennis, even if I don't agree uh, with the thing he says and does. But there's a lot of people that like that. And, and also, uh, sometimes uh, you want to see his matches because you, you would think, well, what is he going to do today? So you are, you know, uh, I, I don't know the word in English. In, in Spanish, we call it morbo. It's like a like this thing that you feel and it makes you want to watch something. I, I will look it up and, and try to, and try to say it, but I think it's good for tennis. Yeah, no, no doubt. And again, uh, the other topic is uh, of content, not contention of discussion is in your era, at least when you started with the tail end of Agassi Sampras and then Drodic came, Americans were like seen as the dominant force in tennis and now Europe has dominated tennis for like last 16, 17 years and looks like it's not going to change because the next wave, you know, with the Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Rublev, Zverev, Sinner, looks like it's staying there. So Mm -hmm. how, how has that transformation been? And, you know, how do you see some of the young Americans, uh, you know, can, do you see an American joining the conversation? Not for the moment. Well, Corda, is, to, Corda is one name I wanted. Well, actually, to. Corda, yes, definitely. You have two Canadians in Shapovalov and Arjel Aliasim. Uh, Corda, I, I watched him play a couple of matches. Uh, he plays very nice tennis. Uh, very nice. Uh, I think uh, that generation of uh, Taylor Fritz and... Uh, and uh, Tiafo. Tiafo and Tommy Paul and all these guys, they're going to stay there. They're going to, they're going to be around, but I don't know if, uh, if they're going to make it to, to be top, top, top players. When I say top, top, top players contending for Grand Slams, you know, like, like this next gen, uh, the, all the names that you just mentioned in Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Tim, Zverev, Sinner, uh, Berrettini, they're going to be contending to win Grand Slams. And I think Shapovalov is all, already there, and maybe Ojeda Aliasim is going to uh, keep, you know, putting his head and putting his face up there. Uh, 
but for the moment, not that I know, uh, they're not Americans. Mm. I don't know about the junior tennis. I, I have not much information about that. Yeah, there's another American kid. I don't know if you've seen him play, Brandon Nakashima. I think he can be good, no, but he's still I don't know him. Uh, he's still making his way up the rankings. He's I think okay. he qualified for Wimbledon this year. Uh, so the next question is, you know, Novak Djokovic. Let's talk about his achievements and uh, what do you see is the ceiling for this guy? You know, he's been dominating tennis for the for more than a decade. Or he's been one of the dominant players and absolutely the clear best right now. And he's sitting at twenty. Yesterday's podcast, or our, sorry, our live show, uh, some of our staff members are saying he can go more than 25. What do you see? I mean, if you, you know, what can, of course, no one knows what's going to happen in the future, but look at his challengers. Who can stop him? And, you know, it's a very interesting conversation. Federer right now looks like he's not, you know, he's still ne- needing time to come back. Nadal's going to be a factor at Roland Garros for sure. But out of the four or five names, uh, who's your challenger for Novak and how far will Novak go in terms of winning slams? I mean, the tally, what's your prediction right now after his Wimbledon win? It's, it's crazy. It's crazy what he's doing. And, and what's more amazing is that if you see his matches at Wimbledon, it's like he just plays at the level that he, his opponent takes him. What I'm trying to say is that is he not, he's not jumping on the match and just killing the opponent. If he needs to play at a 60% level, and that's the level that he's going to need to beat the guy, I mean, that's enough, and, and he beats him. And uh, if Berrettini in the final takes him to, you know, after losing the first set, he has to increase his level a little bit more, he just does it. So he's just uh, mentally so strong, and, and his game is so solid from every aspect that uh, it's just crazy. I mean... His serve, his serve is not uh, around each, but he's a great serve. Uh, his uh, return, of course, I think is the best return on the tour. His forehand is not a great forehand, but he doesn't miss. His backhand is amazing. His movement, uh, how he slides, how he defends. So what's his uh, limit? I think his health. If he stays healthy... He's going to be competing for Grand Slams for the next two or three years easily. So you said something very interesting, which we talked about, but you are a player. So coming from your mouth, you said it best. He's winning these matches. He's only putting in what the opponent is pushing him to. So that means 60, 70% of Djokovic, he'll get it done. So as a player, I know it's not automatic. So even let's take your example. You're not saying, oh, today I'm playing Safin, you know, I'm going to play at 80%. You know, each player has his own matchup, but tomorrow I'm going to play Rafa, I'm going to go 110. So what is the mindset? When do you go to the court and do you look who you're playing and you're just pumped up, you just start hitting the ball bigger? What is, is there, is there a switch? I mean, I mean, I don't even know how to phrase that question, but since you put that, you know, I think uh, with Djokovic in mind with 60%, he's beating Draper and then probably at 70%, he's beating the next guy. So mm-hmm. as a professional player, how do, you, how do players approach these matches? I mean, it's all in the mind, but, you know, a match I, has to be won. It's, it's tough to say. I just think, you know, he's, he's so confident about himself. Uh, he's so confident about his game that, uh, of course, he walks into the match with a 100% capacity and mentality. Uh, but Novak's... 60% is probably better than 
95% of the tour or more. So even, even on a bad day for him, he's beating everyone. So, so that, that, that's, that's one thing. And then the other thing is that these guys have played so many times those important matches is that they walk in into a Grand Slam semifinal or Grand Slam final and they have already lived that situation 30 times, 40 times, 60 times. When the other guys, is probably their first time or their second time. So it's not the same that you walk in on circuit center court of Wimbledon, like Berrettini, to play his first ever Grand Slam final, that uh, Djokovic is walking there and he's playing, he has played how many matches on center court. So they have this, besides all that we have said about his game, his level and how good he is mentally, they have this advantage where their opponents don't play at their best when they're facing these guys. They have an extra place to go mentally because they have done it so many times. They know the opponent will feel the pressure. Mm-hmm. So what is pressure again? That's also an overused term between commentators, media, fans. Is If you're playing, say, whatever match, I mean, you're playing fourth round, or let's go back to your Nalbandian quarterfinal in 2002 at Wimbledon, the five-setter. I mean, is is 15-30 point at three-all a bigger point or players play every point the same? It's definitely a bigger point. 100% a bigger point. It will never be the same uh, a point at 1-all, 30-all, that being 5-all in the final set, 30-all. I mean, uh, you know it. You know it. That is an important point. And... Uh, also, that's what these, these guys are so good about it because uh, they are just much, much better than the rest when, they come to, when, when it comes to important points. They, they, they make very less mistakes if they do. They, they maybe, maybe never, never make a mistake on those times. And uh, that's just a huge, huge advantage. And, and that's all up here in the mind, mentally. Okay, so I'll keep you 10 more minutes. We'll wrap this up. So the names we took of the next generation, uh, do you think ATP is doing a great job to promote these next uh, next generation guys? I mean, we see the promotions are happening, because, but we are on social media, but I want your view. Uh, once uh, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer leave, is ATP in good hands with Medvedev, Sitsipas, Rublev, and you know, all these guys, Ojeal Yassim? I think I think uh, it, they they are in very good hands. ATP it is in good hands, but it's not. I don't think it's the ATP fault on the or the next gen fault. Uh, what's gonna What's gonna happen when these three retire? It's gonna be the the big three fault because they have been so good for such a long time that uh, it's gonna be a huge impact for tennis. Uh, I don't know. I don't know for how for how long was Sampras at, at his best. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sampras won the uh, U.S. Open in 1990, and then he won his last U.S. I mean the U.S. Open and his last U.S. Open I think was 2002. Yeah. Right? So it was 12 years. That was already a very long career at the time. And there were like two bad years by his standard, like 2000 and 2001. After Wimbledon, oh. he went. You know, I mean, every player has that love. I mean, Federer and uh-huh. Federer's also fallen out of top ten. Due and to... then, and then you had Agassi, 
also uh, the same uh, same amount of time he played a bit longer but with andre a lot of up and downs these guys have been there for 20 years and at a, at a, at a high level uh, at the top level no no downs a few a few injuries uh, but almost no downs so for the past 20 years tennis fans have on the top of their heads whenever they see the rankings they see these three guys so it's going to be very difficult just to get used to not to see those three guys and not because these other players the next year they are not good players or they are not great guys it's just because these guys have been so good that it's going to be difficult so the next group of guys team has already won a slam and he's older than the guys but who who has impressed you the most between the rublevs and the medvedevs Oh, yeah, yeah, same here. Uh, I think he's uh, he's the one who has improved the most in the past two years. Uh, he's playing uh, great tennis on every surface. He had a bad Wimbledon, but you know that 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 can happen. And I think I think uh, at the French Open final just happened what we were just talking a few minutes ago. I mean he. He hasn't he hasn't been in that situation before, and uh, he got tied a little bit, and then Djokovic just raised his game, and and then also physically he couldn't he couldn't uh, keep it up with with Djokovic. But I think I think uh, he he's got the game uh, to to make a great impact. Medvedev it has been there for a while also. Zverev. I think has a great game, but I think from those guys is maybe the one that has more up and downs. Yep. So so he can play great a tournament, and then one day he plays bad and no, no chance to recover. Yeah, um, with Zverev, I mean, in in my you know in my circle, my echo chamber, people have discussed Zverev's ability to squander uh, winning positions and tennis is a mental sport, right? We all know he's improved a lot, but he has also taken steps back. He served like 20 double falls, right? Yeah. So at this level, how is that problem fixable? He knows the problem exists. I'm sure he has the best coaches. So how does a player address that? I mean, is that a mental thing or is that a technical thing? And, uh, why does this thing keep coming back according to you? I think it's both, you know, it's, uh, it, it could be definitely something technical on that, but, uh, uh, I think most most of the problem it goes to the mental part, because uh, you know he's. Uh, I, I did a lot of his matches at the French Open, and uh, he was playing great tennis, but whenever he would hit a double fault, uh, in the first few rounds he would lose the game, and uh, he was dominating, but he would hit a double fault and right right away it would come to to his head, and and right after he will make a couple of on four servers in the next few in, in the next few points so that's definitely something that uh, that he can work in uh, with the with a mental coach and uh, you know with a lot of visualization and i'm pretty sure he's he's doing it and and, and he can improve that pretty soon All right so i don't know what what besides broadcasting is coaching something you would see yourself doing if the right opportunity comes along are you open sure. to yeah. traveling why, on the tour why not why not like you said if the right opportunity comes along i would love it you know uh, us as a, as ex tennis players 
it's like it's like we never we never leave behind like uh, like we were players. I don't know how to say it. I mean, we're players. Even if we don't compete, uh, you 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 are part of this tennis family. And uh, I was away from tennis when I retired for maybe six years. I didn't go to any tournament or anything like that. And then I came back to a tournament and I, and I thought, this is, this is my life. This is what I did for so many years. This is what I feel comfortable. And uh, so if there's a nice opportunity, I will definitely analyze it and, and take it. Sure. So let's wrap this up. Not too long ago, exactly two years ago, 2019 Wimbledon, you were on a short list of individuals who could have been on the ATP board replacing Justin Gimmelstab. Mm-hmm. So now it's back in the rear view, but what was your recommendations? What was your pitch for the job? What you saw, what you thought you will bring to the table? Uh, and, you know, what gave you the edge in your view, you know, what, you know, for the, for that kind of a position? No, I thought, I thought that because uh, the, the position that I was looking for was uh, the player's representative for the America's zone. So, so I thought for a long time, you know, Justin uh, was there for three terms, I think, or even more. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't look uh, down at South America too much. So I, so I thought, you know, me as a South American, I could help uh, South Americans without letting out of the, of the view American tennis, which I think uh, Justin was just maybe looking too much at American tennis and not looking down at Central America and South America. And saying that, uh, one of the things that I wanted to, to do is uh, to help the guys Try, try to do something to help the guys that were playing the futures and challenger events. Because uh, I know a lot of guys and friends that are starting and, and, and they go to the future events and they have uh, not too much money and they are spending a lot of money. So give them so many better opportunities. Uh, try to get better deals from the ATP or from the ITF for them to to compete because for South Americans is much more difficult than Europeans because if you want to travel from one country to another, it's so far that you cannot go by car. So if one, if I want to go from here to Chile, from Ecuador to Chile, it's a five, five hour flight. So for a kid that is playing a future tournament and wants to go to Chile, he has to spend $600, $800 in a flight when in Europe you can catch a train or you go driving and you, you'll be in the next country right away. So it's, it's much more difficult for South Americans. And then if a South American wants to go and compete in Europe, he has to go there and stay for three or four months mm. because you cannot come back uh, too often. So one, those, those were the, like the most key things that I wanted to try to, to help. And uh, all these guys that were around uh, those tournaments, they, they felt that uh, nobody took care of them. Like mm-hmm. nobody, nobody would ever come to them or talk to them or ask them what could uh, they improve to get to be better. So that's one of the main things that I was, I was trying to do. No, that's interesting. So you think, uh, again, this is a challenger level you're talking about also, but you think at the tour level, 
is there a south south american country or a city more uh, that's that probably at one point can get a masters 1000 is there a possibility what are the discussions at that level have you heard anything uh, i don't know i don't know if there's a possibility it would be great uh, it definitely if if one day that happens it's going to be argentina or brazil uh, because of uh, how many tennis players they have, uh, maybe because of the uh, sponsorship that you could get from those countries. Uh, but I don't know if uh, any of the countries that have Masters 1000 right now would ever, you know, just let, let, them, let them go, yeah. Because in the Becker Graf era, especially Becker and Steak era, there was like two Masters 1000 in Germany. There was, I think, uh, Stuttgart and and then, of course, the ATP championships. And there was also a tournament, I think, in 96, uh, indoor event. I'm forgetting what city it was. So we've seen that, you know, like, with established players, the markets follow. Mm -hmm. So it's not the other way. The market is not created without a player, pretty much. ATP will not ever go into a... It's due to economic reasons if, if there isn't a superstar coming from that part of the world. Probably, probably. And like I say, it's, uh, it has to be... Uh, Argentina is the country that is uh, uh, given the most quantity of tennis players in the past, I don't know, 40 years. So, so maybe, maybe, and, and the Argentinian fans are so passionate. So that, that would be a country that if Argentina is not playing, they will go and watch tennis. Maybe some other countries, if the local guy is not playing, maybe the fans will not watch too much, too much, too much tennis. Well, that's interesting. I never thought so. But yeah, along those lines. No, this is this was really good. We can go for another hour, but I have to let you go. You know, <laughs> next time, next time you won't come. So we are already 10 minutes into overtime. Thank you, Nicholas. It's a really uh, informative chat. I had fun asking you all these questions. Some were like fan questions, but hopefully the listeners enjoy. Thanks for your time. No, Sakib, it was a pleasure for me. Uh, we'll, we will definitely catch up uh, some other time and and keep talking about tennis and uh, no, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. I hope, like you say, I hope uh, uh, the people that is listening, uh, they enjoy it. <laughs>